Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hey, folks. My name is Lizette. She, her, Ea. Each week, we bring you our take on all things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. It is lucky episode seven, and we have a great guest today. I'm so excited. That's right. Today, we've got a member of our chosen family, Keisha Michaels, here with us, and I'm excited for our conversation with her. All right, folks. Welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Yay. All right, Lisette. Another week in the books. How have you been? I mean, it's wild right now. The news cycle is not letting up. So uh, between real life being busy and the news cycle uh, working at warp speed, I can't imagine what it's going to be like when the election rolls around. Yeah, that's that's looking so crazy already. So Mm -hmm. I can only imagine when folks are in full tilt like this dude said he's about to announce well his camp said he's about to announce next week so i'm looking forward to the fisticuffs between drumpf and de satan it's going to be wild and terrifying all at the same time what's been going on in your life steven oh my goodness so i have gotten my latest pride adidas tracksuit i am super duper excited to show it off y'all are not even ready for me like every year Adidas goes in on pride and they come up with all kinds of funky pride outfits and pride slides and pride track suits and pride te- like they go pride heavy. And of course, because I'm just addicted to Adidas, I have, well, I haven't gotten anything. Nicole got me another track suit. So yes. I'm looking forward to showing it off this weekend at our super secret event that we can't talk about, but it's coming up that we are super psyched for. So I've spent my week in super secret upcoming weekend preparation. So shopping, making reservations, making plans for coverage for the weekend. So I've spent my entire week, much like yourself, getting ready for our super secret weekend that we can't talk about, but we're going to talk about the next time we're on this show. Yeah, we And we'll tell you all about it because you guys are like, what is this super secret foolishness they're talking about? So that's, that's one, one thing that's happened this week. Um, What else has happened? I, I think I told you all the kids are home. So yeah. I went food shopping last weekend and all the food is gone. <laughs> all the food that I purchased. And I, because everybody was home, I spent like 250. Like when they weren't here, I spent like 100, 125. With all four of them here, I spent 250 and the food is gone. I made a whole pan of mac and cheese last night. The whole pan is gone. The whole pan is gone. <laughs> I went downstairs to do laundry. And I saw my son, Chima's back from Howard. I saw his laundry down there. And I was just like, okay, his it's down here. I'm doing laundry. Let me do his laundry. I almost passed out from the malodorous nature of the clothes in his laundry basket. Like literally, I had to get smelling salts to revive myself. It was so funky. Okay. <laughs> I am not looking forward to the rest of the summer. Luckily, he goes back in like August because like Howard gets started early. And at least that one, at least that one with the funky drawers and the funky armpits and all the funky socks, like his socks are made of acid, of of some sort of caustic acid. So yeah, shopping, laundry, just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. You're going to have to buy that like Lysol sanitizing laundry. I've already taken stock. I purchased stock in Lysol. 
Yeah, because I know what this to. summer is gonna be like. Yeah, I already don't like to give hugs, and then when you have a stinky kid who wants to hug all the time, it's just like, oh my goodness, you're like, are I want to hug you. I love you, but how? How is I, how do you smell like this? How do you smell it? Because I know I bought deodorant. I know I bought a stick for each of you, and I handed it to you, and I said, here, use this in them funky pits. Oh, Daniel got the freshman shame. Where somebody was like, damn, you smell, right? And so Daniel has now purposefully puts on deodorant. See, he doesn't fight is, me anymore. Right. That This is the thing that we're trying to protect our kids from. Like, we know what it's like. We've already been there. And our children don't want to listen to us. They're like, oh, you're an old head. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't stink. Oh, you do stink. You absolutely do stink. Your friends are just too polite or they're equally stinky. So don't smell it. But one person is going to smell and be like, yo, B. You might want to hit so, that pits one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened. Daniel was like, oh, my God, Mom, we got to get deodorant. I was like, you have deodorant. So many sticks of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's what those you go. I pulled them out of a drawer in like your room that you just so, discard. Like, Man. Yes. So I, I, I got one stinky left. I got one stinky who doesn't know stinky. Fuji is the stinky one who doesn't know he's stinky. Chima knows he's stinky. He don't care because he's like, oh, I just worked out. I'm like, you're, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. You just woke up. What are you talking about? You just woke up. Like you didn't work out. You sleeping is not working out. You should not be this smelly. Maybe he figures something out. I'm going to ask about this. So please, please. Luckily, <laughs> listen, listen. Our guest today, our guest today is a better as a member of the medical profession. So maybe we can get some, some serious answers about why our children are so damn malodorous all the damn time. Maybe there's something we can do. There's a diagnosis for their funk. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. The way this is laughing, I doubt it. She's going to be like, take a bath. Anyway, before we go too down the, the rabbit hole of our week, let us get to today's topics. There's a lot mm. to talk about today. So much. <sighs> I know we have to we have to catch our breath because this week has been a lot. Okay. So first, let's start with the panhandle. Governor DeSantis signed a slew of new anti-trans bills in Florida. Now, not only did this fool ban gender-affirming care for minors, he also signed a bill that would require trans adults to obtain consent for their treatment from two boards whose members he handpicked and who are actively trying to restrict access to care to, for trans people. Now, and that's not all. I'm, I'm not even done with that. In addition to all that, he has a new bathroom bill that will criminalize the use of bathrooms, meaning that if you go and you use a bathroom that aligns with your gender, you can go to jail. Can you believe that? I mean, I mean, yeah, he's vile. He really is. There was another one that that like allows, it basically legalizes discrimination based on your religious beliefs. So you can mm -hmm. say, hey, your gender identity runs afoul of my religious beliefs. So I am not going to serve you. I'm not going to provide you with this or that or the other thing. I am not going to employ you. I am not going to give you housing. I'm not going to give you safe passage, like, because of my religion, like, it is a step backwards from a, a constitutional prote protections perspective. And just from like a human rights perspective, like, I don't even understand how anyone in Florida can stomach being in Florida. It's awful. I mean, 
you know, I know a lot of people are like joking around too around like his anti-immigrant bill that he signed into law and so many of the migrant workers left the state, right? Um, and so when you see what's happening between like access to trans care, being trans in Florida, uh, women's reproductive rights, the banning of African-American studies, the signing of AAPI, uh, you know, studies to create a wedge to separate, uh, you know, marginalized folks. Um, and then you're talking about uh, the ways in which they vilify hardworking migrant people who come here and provide our homes with fruits and veggies. I mean, it's ugly out there. It's ugly. I mean, provide our homes with fruits and veggies, do all the construction that mm -hmm. is, is taking place or is no longer taking place, provide a host of, of, of services that people in Florida aren't doing. People are constantly talking about anti-immigration. People are always talking about, they're taking our jobs. They're coming here and taking our job. These are jobs that you're not doing, that you would never do, that you could never do, that you would be too embarrassed and ashamed to do. No matter how well it was paying you, no matter how, no, no matter the fact that it's a good, honest, you know, job for an honest, honest wage, you're not doing it. You're not doing any of the jobs that people who come into this country, emigrate into this country and take those jobs are doing. You're just not doing them. And so now all of those jobs in the farms, in construction, you know, domestic work, none of them are being done. And I'm sorry, all of you anti-immigration people who are complaining about not having work, why don't you go take those jobs? And I just, I, the, the economy in Florida is finna tank. And people are going to see how supporting a despot like DeSatan is going to render your state a shithole. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's just amazing. It really is. It's it's amazing how short-sighted people are and, and, and how shithole right now like it's so funny how they use that language to talk about you know countries that they strip of their most you know valuable precious assets. resources mm -hmm. <laughs> let's talk about like the realities of that right like just the uh, the like make it make sense right yeah, it's, the way it's hypocrisy it's of so the highest fun. order and and again, yeah. we can we can talk about this idiot and, and, and his policies and the people who support his policies because he can't do this alone. You know, the no. reality is that supermajority in, in in Florida is enabling him to do the things that he's doing. Because if he had senators and people in his assembly or at the house with backbones, with actual spines, who were not fearful of not getting reelected or getting kicked off some committee, if they actually were not the cowards that they are then Florida would not be the shithole that it's becoming. But, you know, white supremacy, what, what you going to do? Yeah. But, you know, let's not let's not give Florida all the shade because I think Texas just passed a sweeping anti-trans bill banning gender affirming care in the state for trans youth. Yes, SB 14, which is their uh, ban on gender affirming care, was just passed. Um it's it's a scary time. I mean, Texas's face is still, you know, in litigation around child separation from Pac that Paxton and Abbott put through, and now access to care is essentially illegal. It's I can't imagine, you know, the fear that a lot of families are feeling, and also I'm in awe of the families that are like, we're going to stay and fight. Sorry, we're we're not leaving, and so oh. I think 
it's really important. Sorry. I think it's just so important for us to like, remember that there's going to be people that are going to be those bumper rails for justice, you know, like making sure that they're fighting and staying the course to bring Texas back to some just place. This can't be America. This can't be America. I was so, um, I was so proud of one of our very good friends, Rachel, who was on MSNBC, who talked about what's happening in Texas and what she and her family are doing. And, you know, we shouldn't have to be brave. You know, no. we, we shouldn't have to, in the middle of our day, when there's so many other things we could be doing, we shouldn't have to explain on primetime network news why it is that the legislation that's being passed in the state is so harmful to the actual citizens of the state, to people yeah. that reside within its borders. We, we shouldn't have to. And she did an amazing job, but it's like, why should we be doing this? I, I, I just, it's, it's, it's really bothersome to me the way people will see somebody on TV, will see someone using their platform to talk about how wrong what's happening in our country is right now, how damaging the things that are happening in states across the country are right now, how much work parents like us have to do to advocate on behalf of our children and say, oh, they're just doing it for the spotlight. They're just doing it because they just love the attention. Like what parent wants to be out here actively fighting governors and legislators and and, and assemblies for their children to go to the doctor? What person feels like I have to say something because there are other people who don't have a platform, who don't have a voice, who don't have the education, who don't have the privilege of being able to talk about this publicly because they might lose their job, because they might get kicked out of where they live, because of the the, the panoply of consequences that may result from them speaking out. Like, none of us want to be doing this. No. We would rather be sleeping, hanging out with our kids, eating, playing games, thinking about what we're going to have for dinner. We would not be here doing this, but for the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, Rachel yeah. didn't want to be on MSNBC today. She probably yeah. wanted to hang out with her daughter, her daughters, yep. all of her children. But that's what she ended up doing this morning because Texas passed this draconian legislation, which impacts her children. And now she's got to fight back. And she runs back and forth every legislative session, four hours from Dallas to, to Austin to testify or to be prepared to testify because some guys, she drives all that time and they don't even call her or her husband or her child. And then they drive back and they keep doing it back and forth and back and forth. And their lives are defined by the legislative session and not by the things that they want to be doing with their families and their lives and their oh, children. I don't plan anything. I, I, I People in my personal life who are like, let's plan something January. I'm like, I'm sorry. It's ledge session. And it lasts a hundred days. Um, there's nothing outside of advocacy that's going to happen in our lives for a hundred days. I think the last time we had to go up to um, testify against anti-trans legislation, it was like the end of January and we sat there for six hours and then they, they didn't hear the bill. Um, and when we got onto the highway, I mean, you know, I'm usually really good at like, as parents in this moment, we still have to keep life normal and light for our kids, right? Like we can't look afraid. <laughs> we can't be worried and scared in front of them. We got to promise them some semblance of like safety and security. And, and, and I, I just started sobbing, like ugly sobbing. 
in the car <laughs> on the high on I 10. And Daniel was like, What's happening? And I was like, I'm just so sorry. Yeah. I I'm so sorry that that your life is defined by th this political moment, right? Like he was nine the first time we went to the Capitol. And like, he's gonna be 16, his life is defined by this moment. And I'm grateful that he is, is as incredible as he is. He really should But he shouldn't have to be, because it's not normal. It's and, not and normal. You, what's, what's abnormal to me is these politicians who are, you know, debating these bills. There's this one politician in particular, um, a Senator Donna Campbell, Senator Donna Campbell in Texas, who's like an ER physician who is basically advocating on behalf of these anti-trans bills, who claims that this legislation is going to protect children, even though these gender affirming care practices are endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, the Texas Pediatric Society, the American Board of Pediatrics, all of these organizations are saying that these are best practices for care. But this one doctor is going to stand and say, all of the evidence to the contrary is wrong. I, ER physician, know better than the 1.3 million doctors that support this position. Like it, it just boggles the mind because this is what we're fighting against. We're fighting against people who are looking at clear substantiated, evidence-based, researched, peer-reviewed information and saying, yeah, it's untested, yeah, it's experimental, yeah, we don't know what it's going to be, when in fact they do know. It's just like they choose to believe specific instances and they use those specific anecdotal instances to be the arguments they make for the entire group, which is just, it's it's just a fallacy, it's disingenuous, and it's dangerous. And it's not only dangerous for trans youth, it's dangerous for all youth. I was you just got... gonna say, it's perfect you're saying this because we gotta bring the doctor in who can <laughs> set us all straight. Enough with today's topics. Let's bring our guest on for the show. I'm so excited for our guest today. Dr. Keisha Michaels is a pediatric subspecialist in the Mid-Atlantic area. She has extensive experience working with critically ill children, coordinating and delivering all aspects of their care, and serving as a leader in pediatric intensive care units. A member of the Parents for Transgender Equality Council, Keisha is a passionate advocate for the rights of transgender and non-binary kids. Everyone, please welcome Keisha Michaels to our show. Yay! I'm so excited. Welcome to our show, Keisha. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much, Lisette and Steven. I'm so happy to be here with you all. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for joining us. So what's it like being a pediatric physician, listening to our elected officials use disinformation and misinformation as the basis for multiple statewide bans on gender-affirming healthcare for trans youth? Like, how are you processing this all? Truthfully, I'm not processing it well <laughs> at all. It is really hard to listen to this quackery that is being presented as legitimate scientific basis in caring for children when it is anything but it is very very difficult to listen to it when we actually know that it's not true and that there's no way caring for children that the interest is not in protecting children um, it's hard to listen to it's very difficult 
I will say that, you know, I do, I guess I take solace in the fact that, you know, I, I don't think that they will win. <laughs> I do not think they will win. I think we will, we will be able to fight and win in the long run. It may not be short. This battle may not be short. This war may be long, um, but we will win and we will be able to protect our children and our loved ones and colleagues and friends and family who are gender minority people. As we know, gender minority people have been on this planet since people have been on this planet. And so as a part of our humanity, they exist, they thrive, they deserve love, they deserve peace, they deserve joy, they deserve to fail, they deserve to win, they deserve the full expanse of their lived experience. And so we'll get there. It's just going to take a couple of bumps in the road before we get it. Going off of what you just said, what do you say to physicians who call this type of care experimental? I mean, clearly you are a parent of a trans daughter. What does that, what is it that you want them to know? What do you want to say to people who think that this debate is a debate and not one that's been manufactured? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I'm thinking about people who have bought into this idea that it's debatable, right? They've bought into the idea that, you know, our our children's well-being and medical support is something that A is wrong and B is even up for discussion. <laughs> um, I, I, I vacillate, to be honest with you, between I have nothing to say to you, <laughs> that I just want to win and shut you down. That's the first thing that comes in my spirit. And then the second thing is, I think that people are vulnerable to this misinformation because they don't have a lot of information. So I think when there is um, a lack of knowledge and understanding about the history of trans people in the world, trans and non-binary people in the world, um, when there is um, a stage that's already set that makes bias easy, right? So. We have a framework in our country where um, it is very, very easy to marginalize populations. We, we just have very good frameworks for that. So I think I'd want to address them in that way. Um, if I thought anything might work, I wonder if that might work, but I'm not entirely sure. It may just be that those of us who believe in the rights of people have to outvote them. We may have to win, to be honest. So let me ask you a question that's that's a little more personal because you are a pediatric doctor. And so presumably you are interfacing with with patients, with you know, pediatric patients and their families. How have you dealt with transgender, you know, non-binary gender non-conforming children in your own practice? And or how does your medical practice where you happen to serve, um, how do they deal with it? Because again, this this myth of this experimental, untested, new thing is really pervasive in society. And I really do think we need to push back on it. But I'm not a medical practitioner. I'm not a pediatric yeah. doctor. So I'm really curious to know from someone who is, what does that look like? So, you know, that's those are like two questions, really, that I would need to, to address separately. And I'll start with how we manage it, how, how I personally manage patients who are trans and non-binary. Uh, I do whatever the patient needs me to do. That's the bottom line. And I have taken care of children who, who were trans, who, um, uh, for an example, I've taken care of a college-age student who uh, is tran was trans 
um, when I was caring for them and they did not want me to let their parents know that they were trans. And so, although the staff and I knew exactly what name and pronoun this person needed in order to um, really be themselves, this person asked us on purpose, please do not use them so that I can finish college. Because if my family knew that I've been trans, they would completely cut me off and I would not be able to complete my education. And so what did we do? We did exactly what this person asked. And so we do whatever it takes to support our patients. Um, I've cared for a lot of patients who were gender minority and it's not always easy for them, especially in the field that I'm in. I sometimes see them after there's been a suicide attempt. And so trying to support them in that moment, it takes an ear, a, will, a, a willingness to listen, assurance for them that we can be trusted that we will do whatever it takes to help them. I had another example where I had to use the medical team, my medical team that I was in charge of caring for this one child to model for the mother how to address their own child. These two examples are so beautiful because I'm often asked, you know, uh, we have a college of medicine here. Um, I, I've done some, you know, like parent-based training. Like, what is it like for you as a parent what do you need from medical professionals? Um, and people often forget because they're just hearing the salacious that is often so untrue. Um, people forget that gender affirming care is just seeing the person in front of you and using their name and pronoun and seeing a whole person and providing whole care, right? Like Daniel's broken wrist has nothing to do with his gender identity, right? If he fell off a skateboard and like, exactly. what does that mean? <laughs> And so I feel like these two examples that you're saying, that you're giving us are what gender affirming care at their core are, is like caring for somebody, caring for their concerns, hearing their concerns, seeing them and providing the expert care that you've been trained for while giving them the dignity that they deserve while they're in your care, right? Like in your presence, in your office. Thank you for sharing that because often that's the most important piece that gets overlooked that's never discussed like you had me choked up because i was thinking about an instance with with my child where i was unsure of the type of care that they were going to receive when they were going to their just general family practice pediatrician and you know he had a lump on his chest and and you know his mom died of breast cancer and so you know, my son having a lump on his chest and like just talking to me about it and me thinking about, are these people going to like treat him right? You know, like, are these people going to treat him right? Are they going to see this little black body and, you know, a person that's transgender and saying they've got a lump on their chest and respect pronouns and respect the fact that he's a male notwithstanding. And, and I'm, I'm dealing with my son dealing with having a lump on his chest that his mother died of and going into a situation where am I also going to have to worry about him being misgendered? So, you know, the, the concept of listening to your patient and doing that thing that gives them dignity and still gives them the care and the standard of care that they deserve in that moment is so important. It can't be overstated. And so I really do appreciate the fact that 
you you led with that part of your response. Now, I'm gonna let you talk because like I'm I'm getting all the feels and I know you got so much knowledge to drop on us. Thank you so much for just letting us take you off track on that. I think there was a second part, but now we're we're all lost and I'm just deeply moved by your commitment to, you know, trans patients in your office. Um, the reason why we brought you on was also to talk about what happened last week with Dell Medical Children's Center Ooh. in Austin yes. and how they fired all those doctors, um, even though the medical ban wasn't even in place or signed mm -hmm. into law. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? And what can doctors do in this moment to continue to be resistant to the political will of these extremists. What happened at Dell Children's is one of the one of the saddest things I've heard in a long time. So um, we would call that division, we would call them a division. They were the division of adolescent medicine in the Department of Pediatrics, right? So at an institution. And they are subspecialists who care for kind of like tweens, teens, early young adults, right? So they kind of span that adolescent age group. Um, they do a wonderful job caring for lots of different diagnoses. They don't just care for children for gender minorities. They care for cisgender patients. They care for sexual minority patients. They care for patients who come with asthma, patients who have cancer, patients who have, so all kinds of patients, right? They are essentially general pediatricians for adolescents, right? They have extra training so that they can really help these young folks develop, kind of like get their wings, fly a little bit, learn how to assume more medical responsibility as they age. And they're just experts at this, right? So it's really just, it is so disappointing that an organization found reason and cause to let physicians go due to political pressure. Honestly, I, I am still in shock that this has happened. I just cannot believe that an organization, healthcare organization committed, committed in quotes, to caring for children would do something like this. And it's not that people in medicine don't see the writing on the wall. I mean, certainly um, uh, the revocation of, of Roe last year, um, all of these things have prepped many parts of medicine to say, you know what, I'm not really sure my state is gonna support good medical practice. I'm not sure if I can practice here. Like, you know, OBGYNs, family medicine dots, they're all like, I'm not really sure if this is where I can practice, because I don't know if I can give my patients what they need, right? So it's 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 a very it's been a difficult time, I think, for doctors. And I think that last week was just like, wow, it's like a gut punch on top of all of that, right? So we had already had like we knew that these things were coming down the pike, but to hear the whole division, you know, got let go was just so um uh we now, I will say in the last couple of weeks in our circles of physician parents who have gender minority children, um, many are moving, many, because they just, for their for their kids. I mean, they're like, I don't know what else to do. Like, I am not sure, you know, whether I can practice here, whether I can, you know. So, and then many are not. I mean, there are those who are like, I want to, I don't want to leave, but I don't want to put my child, you know, like, are we gonna be able to take good care of our kids? And so what can physicians do? That was the second part of the question. You know, how can physicians respond in this moment? 
how can they, how can we stand up to this system? How can we resist is the word you use. And I think my answer to that is to be brave. I think we have to be brave in this moment and stand up for what is right. Those of us who know what is right have to stand up and say it. And I think, you know, for example, if I were in a system that told me I cannot take care of this child appropriately, then uh, my form of resistance would be to take care of the child appropriately. Nothing will stand in the way of my delivering good care to my patients. I will not allow it. I would rather not practice. I would rather not ever write another script. I would rather not examine another patient before I knowingly give a patient substandard care. I will not do it. And so knowing that we have, you know, the literature, the data, all of our major organizations support gender affirming care. People call it med medically necessary care. I call it medically appropriate. It's actually different than medically necessary. It's medically appropriate. And it is what children and young adults need to live their full lives. And we have enough data to know that these people do so well when they're getting supported, yet that information is never discussed. They never talk about the fact that, oh, you know what? Your kid is just living her life. Yeah, she's just living her life. Oh, Daniel, Daniel's just living his life. Daniel's worried about, you know, school, what activities, you know, college, couple years, you know. This is what's happening in our kids' lives when they don't have to think about the nonsense, right? So my answer is we have to be brave and we have to resist in small and large ways. Now, would, would I prefer to have organizations be a little more forthright <laughs> at this moment, at this juncture? Absolutely. I would love to hear organizations on the news. I would love to see, you know, in newspapers, you know, this organization is coming out and saying, you know, gender affirming care is appropriate for our children who are gender minorities. I would love to hear them say that. And I, and I think that there is, some, there is room for that to get better. We're not at the point where this is a vocal thing that's being said from our formal institutions. So that, I, that it took me a long time to say that, but sorry. No, no, <laughs> uh, thank you. That, that's actually, it leads to like something that we were talking about earlier um, about uh, Dr. Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, who is the president-elect of the American Medical Association, who is also the first openly gay president of the organization, who has publicly stated that he intends to address this growing slate of anti-trans legislation, providing, uh, preventing rather uh, doctors and people in the medical profession from providing that appropriate, medically appropriate care for their patients. So what does that tell you about kind of this bravery that you're speaking to? I think it's fantastic. I don't know this person who has committed to doing this uh, when uh, he takes, when he assumes his term, um, but we need more of that. We need, you know, not just one, we need all of, you know, the majority of people to, who hold these positions of power to say, you know, I have a bullhorn in my corner and in my corner, I'm going to use that bullhorn and say it out loud that we're going to support every single person. You know, one of the things that we talk about in um, like diversity, equity and inclusion work is that when you reach out, if you see the power circle as a dynamic circle, right? If you reach out to the folks who are the most marginalized on the periphery, right? Of the axis of power, 
if you set up systems to make sure that they never get left out, you will always catch everybody else, right? It is a benefit to the entire society to make sure that the most marginalized person is covered and taken care of. Why? Because that means that whatever system you have in place for them is going to work for everybody else. And why we have not been able to internalize, well, I know why, I understand why in this country, that's a hard concept for us because we have this rugged individualism that we hold as truth, which is not true. Um, but if we could do more of that, if we could actually excavate our um, biases and all these other things so that we could start to uh, process, what does it mean to actually reach out, reach our hand out and create systems, not just personally, not just one-on-one, -on -one, not just, you know, I want this person to know that I care about them. After George Floyd died, I got so many text messages. We care about Black people. We want, we, you know, we're anti, we, we don't support racism. Well, we're three years out from George Floyd and those systems are still in place. And so we may want to, in our minds, say, oh, you know, theoretically, I support marginalized people. But until you have systems in place, and that means laws, that means practices, that means policies, until you actually excavate those and carefully plan your society so that they are included, you won't make progress. It doesn't matter what the heart says on an individual basis. It matters what the paper says. What does the law say? What does the policy say? What does the practice say? What does the healthcare company say? The healthcare company has to say, we're gonna keep these doctors because they provide care. That's the kind of practice and policy I'm talking about. Not the text messages saying, we care about you and your kids. That's, we actually don't need that. We need the practice and the policy. Okay, you all are getting me right No, 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 you could miss me all that text message That's my favorite quote. Like, and I, I'm, I can't, I'm not, I won't even paraphrase it, but there's a quote by Martin Luther King where he says, if there are laws in place that protect me, it doesn't matter whether someone hates me. And that's truly the crux of it, right? Is like, is that's like, exactly it. They understand like the these lobbies and hate groups ha have understood how to use policy because they created the structure. And they actually understand racial dynamics because they created it. And so we're always at a loss. Um, on, on how to what what is it what systems could look like what they should look like right um, and then and then in shock and horror when the laws and the systems that implement them work the way that they're supposed to and I think that it's where progressives always fail yeah you're throwing out all the things and we could have like a three hour podcast episode and so i'm not gonna do that to our new listeners on episode seven but, but we'll know that we are going to invite keisha back for another <laughs> one because there's so much there's so much here there's so much you know so many layers on this onion to peel back that we're only like getting at the surface layer um i do want to ask though you know just to bring it back to our families right um your daughter's going off to college soon which i know you're super excited about <laughs> Um, and, you know, talking about all the restrictions on liberty for transgender youth and adults happening in states across the, um, across America, like, how are you having these discussions with her? And like, mm -hmm. you know, how are you, I often talk to Daniel about safety. Now, I also mm -hmm. tell, talk to Daniel about the nuances of his own safety, right? Like he, he's 
he's a masculine person. He has so many privileges in the ways in which he physically mm -hmm. looks and expresses himself in the world. Like, what are those discussions like? And like, how are you feeling? Because I know that when Daniel finally goes off into the world, I'm going to maybe spiral a little bit out of worry. Understood. And I have that. I've just been trying. So I do. I have that true internal fear um, to let her go. We have been able to cocoon her <laughs> in safe spaces where, you know, she has friends and she has been letting people know that she's trans in her social circle without our knowing, like we didn't even realize that she was in the process of like coming out to her friends and they know and she feels good about it. And um, you know, we have a fairly close family friend who is an adult who's trans. And, you know, I am always hopeful that that's helpful to her, like to, to to have a relationship where she can um, she can see maybe herself, right? That you know you can have a college degree and have a job and um, make a living and be happy and travel. So I'm scared to death to send her off to school. And while I when I initially talk about sending our second child who was trans off to school, you know we kind of rejoice in this idea that we'll be empty nesting. We kind of laugh and say, oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> We've already booked our cruise, right? I mean, that's what we go to. But the truth is, I, I actually am some, I am somewhat in denial about the amount of fear that I have. I sometimes won't even let it come to the surface. I'm so scared for her. Yeah, I understand that. I think we all feel it so we deeply. All it. We all feel it. It's one of those things where, you know, we do our best to, you know, protect them to cocoon them and arm them with the mm -hmm. ability to, you know, have that agency. Like it really touched me when you said that she's been sharing her identity with other people because, you know, like my son, he's been doing the same thing unbeknownst to me. And I, and I, I hear things that he's doing and I hear things that he's saying where I'm just like, wow, I didn't realize that you had taken such agency, that you have taken mm -hmm. such ownership of your identity in your own social circle so that you can be comfortable with who you mm -hmm. are as you are with the people you choose to interact with. And it's just, you know, I think it's a part of the maturation process process naturally mm -hmm. that children go through regardless. And so mm -hmm. whether you're straight or bi or gay or trans or whatever, at some point you're going to say, Hey, I want you to know who I am because I want to be my authentic self with you. And I think it's mm -hmm. important that you know, and they mm -hmm. decide when that is and with whom that is. Mm -hmm. And we, we have to kind of accept that they're their own people, but it doesn't mm -hmm. stop us from being parents and feeling a certain amount of trepidation as they edge their way into the world without us, um, with us kind of, you know, peering around corners <laughs> behind trees because we want to kind of keep a watchful eye on them but we recognize that you know they're gonna have to find their way in this world that is not always going to be nice regardless of their their gender identity you know the world isn't always going to be nice and we're we're a we're, we're people of color on this drive on this podcast right now so we already know that the world is not nice unless you are a cis white male and so 
it's it's kind of I think it, it kind of comes with the territory, but at the same time, it's it's terrifying. And again, I want to ask you now about like there's intersectional identities with, with your daughter, like and how are you? And again, I mean, this may be you answering this question the same way, but how are you kind of helping her navigate that her intersectional identities? Yeah. Um, so when I start talking about intersectionality, her eyes cross because she hears, so I, you know, I love doing this work. I love inclusion work and that kind of thing. I do a lot of it in my, like my job. And she's like, mom, are we going to talk about marginalized people again? <laughs> and you know why she feels that way? Because she hasn't felt marginalized. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that you want them to feel like they can exist safely in all spaces at regardless. Yes. And and I think I think too, like, you know, for as scared as I am that Daniel's going off, I feel kind of reassured. Like we taught him that difference between I think out being out is relative, right? Like because there's so many mm -hmm. ways in which people come mm -hmm. out all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, us, it was like this conversation between around agency, but there's also been other instances where like we were walking through campus one day, like years ago, and Daniel was like, what are all these blue poles? Right. Uh -huh. uh, yes. And I was like, yep. oh, Daniel, let me tell you oh, about the blue poles. Let me poles. tell you about the blue poles. Uh, I was like, before cell phones, these were the lights that you could run to if you were being attacked by someone on campus. Yeah. Um, and you, there was a phone on them and Daniel's like, that sounds awful. Like, what is it? <laughs> like, you would have to stop and call if you were being chased down by someone. And I was like, I know. And we started having a lot of conversations around situational awareness, which mm -hmm. in junior high, they don't have, they don't even have like the situational awareness on like how their body bumps into people around them. You know what I mean? And so like that became the rule, like you cannot get your license until you've mastered situational awareness. Cause just that's part of driving too. So came like this goal and like we always have these conversations around situa situational awareness but really so much of our safety is mm -hmm. entrenched in that right and so mm -hmm. I think like I this is why the conversation around our children I really hope that we have cis parents like parents of cis youth listening to this so that they can see like I have those conversations with my kid and yes. I want your kid to have that same level of safety. You're right. Like I, right. I too worry in the same way. Um, and and you shouldn't be impacted by by policy. Um, and and you should. Mm -hmm. You're you're right. You know. And so because so much of this we lived and learned through too. You know, like how to keep ourselves safe in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And so you know, that's the silver lining, I guess, is that I still survived somehow. <laughs> yes, that we all survived it, exactly. And going to college and like dating and all these things that, you know, we we were doing. And it's just, it's a, it's another ball game for our kids, right? So they don't just have to deal with the fact that they are a Latino or a Black kid, right? They're Latino and trans. They are Black and trans. And they have to learn how to navigate being in those spaces. And sometimes, I can, you know, we've had many conversations with her about this, that, you know, it may, you may be in situations where neither, right, like, you may not be getting the right vibes from Black folks, <laughs> you may not be getting the right vibes from cis people, that you may, like, you know, you may find yourself in that in-between, right, where you have to carefully curate your 
people, right? Where you have to figure out who are the people who can stand with me? Who are my potential friends? Who could be an ally, even if they're not a friend, maybe they could still be an accomplice or an ally. Um, you know, we do talk about that. And then, you know, one of the things that I think is most fearful for, for my husband and for me, is her dating, you know? Um, she's, she's a pretty girl and I just, and I know I say that I, I'm bragging. I know I understand it. I get it. I know I'm a mom. I'm bragging hundred percent. Um, but it's true. She's cute. Right. And so <laughs> I, I worry because I think she will draw the attention of people, you know, who, who are drawn to that. And we, that has actually been one thing that we have not let her really navigate on her own. We have told her in, in every simple, like the most simple way, before you date someone, they have to know you're trans. That may not be the right thing. Like that, that may not be what, you know, cause I have talked to trans adults about this and had conversations and they're like, well, that's really her choice. And I was like, but you don't understand. She's a black trans woman and her risk for violence is against her is high. And we do not want someone dating her who does not know that she's trans. And do not want someone to be surprised and like, oh, my God, and then have a justified crime of passion against my child, because we know that that happens and that these people may not even be penalized because they're justified, because the world is so um, uh, steeped in this bias against gender minorities that the judge, so I, my mind is going to all these things like, you know, will the judge be supportive? Will they say that this person had no right to commit a, a violent act against your child or whatever? And so we just say, that's not negotiable. You have to talk to people about your trans identity if you are about to date them in any way. So yeah, that's a hard stop for us. Now, whether she'll do it, I don't know, but we have really tried to impress upon her the need for safety around dating. And we've tried to connect her with people who do this for a living. Like how do, you know, she has a healthcare, she has a clinician that she just started seeing who really specializes kind of in that, in that area, how to help navigate her sexual life, right? So um, relationships and intimacy and all of those kinds of things, agency and consent, um, because parents can't do it alone, whether your child is cis or trans <laughs> or non-binary, we need help, we need support. So we sought that out intentionally, very so, long answer. So care teams are so important. Care teams are necessary. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Yeah, I just, I, I'm so happy that you accepted the offer we extended to be on our podcast. I, I would love to talk to you for hours and hours and hours. But before we started, we were talking about going to bed. And so <laughs> we are so grateful that you joined us today, Keisha. You're just an amazing person. We know you. We love you. We wish the best for you. Thank you for joining us today. And if you can stick around, if you don't have to go right to bed, you know, we have our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes. So you may want to find out who our asshole of the week is. I do. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you, Keisha. We love you. Now it's time for our reoccurring segment, Allies and Assholes where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Steven, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is none other than Nebraska Senator Megan Hunt. 
who took to the Senate floor to call out her conservative colleagues who were attempting to tack on a 12-week abortion ban to an anti-trans bill under consideration. She called them trash humans. I and I that. was like living for it. She called them trash humans like three times. And I was like, yes. And honestly, I listened to her impassioned speech on the floor today when I was driving to pick up Daniel on my million hour drive to pick him up from school. And when I tell you that I cried, I just cried. Like the way in which she showed up with empathy and heart, like a leader does, was deeply powerful, deeply powerful. She told the other senators that she had no respect for them for proposing legislation that had never been an issue in the state in prior legislative sessions and sneaking out the side door to avoid facing their constituents who were protesting outside the state house. Trans people are under attack in this country, plain and simple. We've never had an anti-trans bill before. We've never had a bathroom bill that anyone in the legislature would have taken seriously. It's just irreparable. This is why I tell people that they need to be paying attention. It's the erosion of privacy rights. We know that this was going to happen when Roe, when Dobbs, when the Dobbs decision, which was the dissolution of Roe v. Wade, fell last last June. Um, I think that we are in scary times where I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to legally combat all of this, but her standing up, her actually paying enough attention as a lawmaker to read those amendments being put in and to catch that and to say, "Mm -mm, we are not doing this. And I mean, she was powerful. And I'm so, I bet you people in Nebraska feel really proud today um, that they stood up against the hate um, by voting down this horrific bill. Everything you just said, and this is why Senator Hunt is our ally of the week. All right, so Lisette, who is our asshole of the week? I mean, I feel like from here until forever, it's going to be DeSatan. Governor DeSatan signed three new anti-trans bills into law. Um, He truly is a horrible, trash human being. Um, And we are in solidarity with all the Floridians who are kind of reeling from what happened yesterday. So this human piece of feces signed all of these horrible laws, which are driving families out of Florida, which are ruining the economy of Florida, which are limiting women's reproductive rights, which are limiting the rights of transgender people and their families. What he is doing is causing tangible harm to the people in Florida. And he's doing it all because he's setting up to be the next presidential candidate for the Republican Party, as if this behavior is going to appeal to anybody other than his red meat base in backwoods, alligator-infested Florida. It just doesn't jibe. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. We're seeing fascism in real time. And We're people, seeing it in real time. People are not, they, they don't have enough wherewithal to like really comprehend what's happening but it's fascism in real time it's one state testing i mean look at all this anti-trans legislation has been testing to see how far they can push people 
by marginalizing a subset of people, right? If you, if there's been enough silence against trans people that they're like, all right, now we got women's reproductive rights. Now we got, we're going to just keep adding them on. And they're just testing to see how far they can go. It's fascism in action. And, and the sad so, part is that because he's also dumbing down his state by removing books from libraries, by restricting what teachers can say and what they can teach from K through, at this point, college as well. If you go to a state college in Florida, you can't have, you know, American, African-American history. You can't have any of these things. You can have AAPI. And that's, we already talked about that. So we're not going to go into that wedge issue, but he's making it harder for people to understand what's going on because he's taking away their ability to learn in their state. And people don't know this because they're stupid and this country is keeping them intentionally dumb. The scores for US history dropped again for like the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth year in a row. And so people don't know the history. They don't know American history. They don't know world history. But let me give you a little world history lesson. There was a man called Adolf Hitler, and this man did exactly what's happening now in Florida, in his own country. They targeted transgender people, gay people, lesbian people, gender nonconforming people for this type of treatment. And they rounded them all up and they experimented on and killed them. And that is how it started. That is how the, 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 the torture camps started. It started with this marginalized group, and he is repeating a playbook of a absolute horrible person. And if you don't know this, listen to me clearly. He is not the first person to do this, and he probably won't be the last. He could be if we all stop him and we recognize what he's doing. But again, people are too stupid to recognize history when it's repeating itself because they don't know the history. So... Uh-oh, our guest wants to say some. Okay, this is this is unprecedented, folks. Oh. Your comment about the scores on the A on the AP history exam, even if they were perfect scores, they still wouldn't know the actual truth. No. Yeah, because no, we're not wouldn't. teaching the actual truth. We're not teaching mm -hmm. the actual truth. We're teaching, teaching a whitewashed, said intentionally, version of history. And I also want to say this too, because I know our inclination is to be like, people are too dumb to, to see it's happening. I also think that people are really afraid of it being real, right? Because if you acknowledge fascism, you have to stand up against it. And that's disruptive to everyone's lives. And so I really do hope that, you know, people see resistance in a multifaceted way. I know that like trans people are used to this. They, they create communities of care, right? Like I'm, I'm in, I'm in many of them, you know, watching them do the work and, 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 and I'm focused in policy, but I feel like we need to be less afraid of our day-to-day -day life being disrupted so that we can stop this moment. Like we really need to actively stop this moment and it's not going to come without some level of sacrifice. So the problem, um, Lisette, is that we, people of color, people of marginalized identities are aware and we are fighting back because it's our lives that are at stake and we've always had to do this. This is a default setting for us. It is not a default yeah. setting for the majority of people that are seemingly unaffected. And I say seemingly unaffected because they don't understand the ramifications of what's happening right now. And it's that, you know, if they come for me in the morning, they're going to come for you at night. They don't know that they're still coming for them. They think they're safe. Oh, they've taken them away. So everything's good. No, 
That's just the first wave. They're coming for you. And so this discomfort, it's not us. We stay discomforted. We stay in an uncomfortable state of being all the time. So we're always ready. We're always ready. We're always hypervigilant. Situational awareness is a default setting for us. We're not talking about us. We're talking about the other people who don't look like us, who don't okay, live in our zip codes. I'm just saying, like, this is this is where it's not, like, we have to, like, this is a clarion call for the people who are sitting back idly, I say it all the time, and who think that their rights aren't being affected when they are. It's for y'all we're doing this. We're not doing this for us because we're already in the fight. Y'all need yeah. to get into the fight before it's too late. Well, thanks for making me grumpy again, Stephen. I was grumpy for like two weeks, being like, You're I welcome. hate everyone. I, I had well, a moment look. of empathy. I was like, we got it. Like, look, people, I'm going to assume best intentions. And now no, you're reminding and, me. But you're right, Lisette. You're right. We <laughs> should have, we should give people hope. And so if you're hearing, if you're, if you're tuned into our podcast, we're going to leave you with a positive note. Next week on our podcast, we have something super duper special to share with you that we've been working on that is just going to tickle you and make you feel like rainbows and and unicorns are real i'm running on adrenaline it's gonna be yes. good so folks we've arrived at the end of our show thank you so much to our guest keisha michael for tuning in and and just really having an amazing conversation with us thank you lisette for being your amazing superstar self um, like I love just how passionate you are. I just loved how steeped in knowledge you are and have you've been doing the good work for a hot minute. So thank you for all that you do and continue to bring to this show and continue to bring into my life since I met you. Because again, as you know, without you, I couldn't do any of this. I adore you, Steven. And I'm just so grateful Keisha was here today. Um, as Steven said, this is the end of the show. We hope that you come back for episode eight and for all the excitement we're going to bring. And as usual, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to to stay up to date on everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast. Good night, everybody. Good night. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.